0: This text is from Mark 1, 14 to 20. It should be up on the screens. Um, So please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. And he had gone a little farther. He saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is God's word. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you again. We are in our uh, vision series, as Naomi said. And um, today, uh, I want to talk about a a vision of formation and fire. Last week, I talked about a vision for life, and uh, I want to do a part two that on on a vision for formation, as in spiritual formation. Since everyone in San Francisco considers themselves spiritual, I want to talk about what it what it what it looks like to have a spiritual formation formed according to Jesus, and then I want to talk about fire. Let's pray. come Holy Spirit, just even thinking of that that last part, fire. We pray that there'd be something uh, of the the spirit of the living God that comes down upon us and visit us in our gathering um, as it happened in the early church, fire, purifying, illuminating, uh, quenching, that would happen today in our hearts and our minds and... um, And you do this for uh, your glory, God. Would you uh, help me as I uh, communicate uh, the way of Jesus today? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this morning I'm gonna start rather harshly, meaning um, uh, I'm gonna begin where we left off last week. There's not gonna be any like really cool intro. Just here's a quote that we ended with last week. So kind of harsh. Last week we talked about Jesus as a philosopher that came not only to save us from sin and bring us into a relationship with God. Yes and amen to all of that, taking none of that away. He also came to show us how to live a good and flourishing life here and now, what Jesus called life to the full. And he does this by teaching us how to live into the kingdom of God. And so I ended with this quote last week. If you were here, you know. If you don't, we're here and you're just, you, I hope you, hope you catch up by the end of the sermon, but... Very unlikely, but hopefully you were here last week. Um, ended with this quote. Uh, the flourishing and happy life does not happen accidentally. It must be sought after. And the means of pursuit is a life of discipleship to a philosophy. Philosophy is the love for wisdom. Uh, a desire to, live a, to, to know what the world is and how to live in the world. A way of seeing and being in the world that is pursued and practiced First, become aware of yourself, then turn away from foolish and non-giving life habits and thoughts, in biblical language, repent, and then over time, learn new ways of living through failures and successes in practice." I said that our vision for your life, everyone has a vision for your life. We have a very explicit vision for your life if you are part of our church, and it is this, a whole life discipleship around the way of Jesus, a philosophy, so to speak, a way of living that makes it possible to truly live. Now, what is that? What does that mean? That's how we ended last week. What does that mean? Here's a picture of our logo. Our logo in the center there, in the, in the like negative space in the center. It was designed by a rather kind of famous, amazing designer named uh, Mackie Saturday. Not only is he has the coolest name ever, um, he's he's worked on and created designs and logos for like very, very recognizable companies. And we had a mutual friend, and he knew of our church, and there was good vibes all around. And so we he he said yes to working with us. Now my favorite part with working with Mackie was the when he was pitching um, the logos that he designed for our church, he gave a 10-minute master class on what logos are for and what they are supposed to do in the pitch meeting. And I was like, that was, that was the price of the whole experience, like just this like master class that he gave. And he said that the best logos are simple, like really simple, like too simple, but they are complex in their simplicity because a logo becomes what the whole company is known for. It's like instant brand recognition. And he gave us some obvious examples. I'm sure you can think of many obvious examples of a a logo that embodies and encapsulates the entire company. And then he said what he came up with for our church was a simple, but he thinks um, complex at the same time logo that embodies our values and our story and our hope for a church community when he was listening to us talk about our church. And he said, I hope I capture it in a logo. And then he showed us this logo. And my first thought was like, yeah, that's, that's simple. That's, <laughs> that's real simple. I was like, okay, cool. And then he's like, let me just explain it. And then he said, in the middle of, of the negative space uh, is a cross. Because you are a a cross shaped community. You're a Christian community. Jesus in the center of your church. And you said that a lot when you described who you were. And then not only that, but the blocks, the four blocks in the corners, make it also look like an intersection of a city, like buildings all around, since you are a city centered church. But not just that, there are arrows, those points that point in and arrows that point out, showing that you are a church that gathers and a church that scatters or sends all over the city also that you have this inward movement of the church to reach and form the soul, but also a call to go out and bring renewal to the city. And I was like, uh, yeah, that's, that's literally exactly it. That's it in a logo. That's our logo, thank you. This is our logo now. Where do we write the check? But not only that, this logo also houses what we hope every person in this church will come to learn, practice, and be formed by. They are four practices of practicing the presence of God, these like inward movements of practicing the presence of God, and four practices of participation, this outward movement to bring the renewal of all things in the world. So this also houses our rule of life, as we call it. Now, practice of presence, what we hope that every single person who goes to our church learns how to practice in their discipleship to Jesus or their apprenticeship to Jesus is prayer, prayer, that you know and learn and practice prayer, that you know how to pray, you know how to have a prayer life, you know how to, to pray through meditation and pray through intercession and pray through <clears throat> silence and solitude and all of these things. <clears throat> also, hope that you would practice scripture and that you know what scripture is, that you have a biblical literacy, you know what it's for and how to meditate on it and how to apply it and how to read it, and it as a whole, that you would practice rest through Sabbath, that you would because our city is so fast-paced and it's work, you move here to do something. You move here to work in San Francisco that you would learn how to rest and that your identity is firmly placed in who you are in Christ and not what you do and that you would f- also practice fasting, which is my favorite, not, not, not serious at all. I don't like fasting. <clears throat> fasting, and this is, um, this is important because... Uh, we usually do what our body tells us to do. Like, we usually, if we're hungry, we're tired, whatever, we'll do what, we, it, it, what it tells us to do. And we learn, as it says in the book of 1 Corinthians, we learn uh, to make God our belly, like our passions, our desires, our wants. And fasting learns how to reshape those to be submissive to God. So practice of presence, but also practice of participation. Not only are we just this inward church that wants to learn the Bible and prayer and all this other stuff, but outward, participating with the renewal that Jesus Christ is bringing. So this is practicing hospitality. This is showing hospitality to those who are far off from God or people who need hospitality. This is practicing practices of generosity, like we stand and read every single Sunday that we would practice generosity to where there was no need among us. Practice of community because this life is not to be lived alone, but we're actually brought into a new family in Jesus, and we're practicing community, and also a vocation that everything we do, whether you do for work or you do in your life, what you do in your life and with your life would come from a deep sense of call that you have from God. Now, we actually, what happened was we designed and redesigned all of our community groups. We did this thing where we, last year, we stopped having community groups, which was like the the like, lifeblood of our church, we said, for years and years and years, and we said, we're not doing community groups anymore, which is kind of a crazy thing to do. And we said, what we're going to do is we're going to revamp and redo our entire community group system and the way that we do them so that we orient them around these practices. And that's what we'll be doing, and that's what we're going to be launching. Sign-up started last week, and hundreds of you signed up, and we're looking forward to launching community groups. And they're going to be around these, these, these practices, Now our hope is that you would weave into your life a set of relational rhythms and intentional spiritual practices that point your life towards what philosophers call a telos, a goal, a meaning, a great end. Now our telos here at Reality is union with God and becoming a person of love. We want you to experience and practice union with God and becoming a person of love as um, the Christian mystic James Finley says, God breathed you into being on the earthly plane for a short time so that you learn how to love. To order and reorder your loves in the right way. This is the hope of all spiritual formation. This is the telos that we have as a church. And we call this our rule of life. Rule, not rules, rule. This comes from the Latin word regula, which is um, a straight piece of wood where we get the word ruler from. They would take these straight pieces of wood and make trellises, and this is where rule life comes from. A trellis was something that you keep vines healthy and keep them growing up. There's a, a, a metaphor that Jesus gives that he is the vine and we are the branches and we're supposed to live in God and therefore bear fruit. You know that passage in John 15? John 15 there were ancient followers of Jesus that believed that you actually have to, like a lattice, create rule in your life, order in your life, to order your life around and arrange your life and your schedule around God. And it was called a rule of life. This is our rule of life, the practices of presence and the practices of participation. This is what we believe, um, if you're following Jesus in a city like San Francisco, are really important to practice as you apprentice under Jesus, how you become like Jesus. Okay, so that's it. That's like the <clears throat> logo pitch. That's the, like what we are here to do. Now, the question is, why? Why are we doing this? Why, are we do, why, why would we want you to learn prayer and silence and solitude and Scripture? And all? Why would we want you to learn all of this stuff? Is this some attempt to write for you a spiritual formula, a performance plan that you that we think will help you kind of map out your whole spiritual life in order to remove all failures and the dark, lonely times along the way. Why are we doing this? And here's why. Because you are becoming someone. You are, with every decision, every habit, every schedule you keep, everything you track on your smartwatch or phone, you are becoming someone. Day after day, year after year, you are becoming someone. At the end of 2022, the habits you kept throughout the year, over and over again at the end of the year, added to this becoming. You are becoming more like this person that you're becoming. Now the question is, are you becoming who you want to become? I don't know if you ever went down a rabbit hole in your own photos app, but I did last week, on, uh, kind of on accident. I've been in rabbit holes on YouTube, obviously, but like on my own phone and my own pictures. And so I was somehow found myself deep into 2016 on my phone. And I'm swiping through the photos in 2016. Now, here's the thing. 2016, I'm sure most of you weren't a part of our church in 2016. But if you were a part of our church, you went through this thing called the year of biblical literacy, like a whole year in the Bible. And this year was in some ways the best year of my life and ended in the worst way for my wife and myself. Like, I would say rock bottom worst. And I know how the year ends, and I know who I become at the end of the year, and I know who my wife becomes at the end, towards the end of the year. As I'm flipping through these photos of January and February and March, and I'm watching this, I'm like, I'm here, I'm there, we're doing these activities, we're doing this, we're doing that. Like somehow I was like in London and in Santa Barbara, like within two days of each other. I'm like, how did I, I don't even remember doing that. And I'm like, this place and that place, I'm flipping through it. And if this was Instagram and I was scrolling, I'm like, wow, I'm living a good life. But I know how it ends. I know that it ends with my, my um, wife in a recovery program. And I know that it ends with me writing a letter of resignation to the church. If you don't know the story, you should just go back and read the archives. Um... <laughs> But that's how it ends, no joke, that's how it ends. And as I'm flipping through this, I'm looking, I'm like, you're becoming someone you don't want to become. With everything that you're going after, everything you think you're doing, it's not making you who you want to become. And what happens is, and by, and this is like the worst thing that's happened to Ashley and I, and the best thing that happened to Ashley and I, was, we were talking about this week, like we both hit a place that was like literally rock bottom. And we realized that the habits we kept, that we cultivated daily in our lives was making us to become someone that we did not want to become. And this brings up an important point about your becoming. We typically don't know and we typically don't become what we want by thinking our way into it. Now we think that, especially as People that live in San Francisco, we think we can, like, uh, think our way through any problem, logic, you know, zeros and ones, that sort of thing. But knowledge is important, but it's not all important. The reason is, before we are thinking creatures, we are longing creatures. We are humans driven by our desires and our wants and our loves and our passions. And the thing is, we become what we love, You become what you love. The things we desire, the things we worship, if you want to use that terminology, worship, the things you love or worship, you become. We turn into the things that we love and worship over time. Why? Because what we want, we'll make time for. What we want, we'll work all day and all night to achieve. And this is subconscious. The thing is, our loves and our desires work on a subconscious level under the surface where we don't even realize that we're driven by them. We'll be carried along by our loves without even knowing it. Until one day it either pays off or it all comes crumbling down. And so I'm swiping through these photos, knowing, knowing at the beginning of the year, Dave, you're being carried along by something that you don't even know and you won't even see until I slip, I flip. Th- to October and November. And then the cracks will start showing. This is both the beauty of our desires and loves and the tragic horror of them. David Foster Wallace, the famous American novelist, with no theological agenda whatsoever, he was not a Christian uh, that we know of, no theological reason whatsoever, no agenda, he just says this in, in, in a commencement speech to a bunch of college students, graduating college, he says this, not a Christian, he says, he says, in the day to day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. This is his word not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing we were to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, they will if they are where you tap real meaning, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It is the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs and cliches and epigrams and parables, a skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will never, ever, you will never, ever, you will need ever more power over others to keep fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And here's the good part the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're sinful or evil, which I don't know if I agree with that, but I like this next line. It's that they're unconscious. They work at a different level in your, in your life. You can't really think your way into becoming who you want to become. I know we think that, and we read the books. We read the, produ- the, the How to Be Productive books, How to like, Take Over Your Life books, How to Be Successful books. We think we could think our way into it, but it's not really about knowledge. Not even knowledge of our own subconscious. is really about love. And what we love, or as David Foster Wallace just put it, what we worship it's really about reshaping our loves, taking our loves and reordering them around the good. And reshaping only happens in two real ways. Reshaping, or what you might call formation, happens in, of your loves in two real ways. First, you have to find what you were created to love. Find what you were created to love. And second, orient your entire life toward it. This is how you reorder your loves. This is what formation uh, consists of finding what you were created to love, and then orient your entire life toward it. Let me talk about the first one. There is a, a very um, old quote, um, one of the most uh, famous quotes from uh, the fifth-century philosopher and bishop of North Africa, named Saint Augustine. And uh, in the opening paragraph of his Confessions, his confessions about the Christian faith, he puts his finger on the true center of our human identity when he writes this. You probably have heard this quote. It goes like this. You have made us for yourself. This is a prayer to God. God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Keep that quote up there. You have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. In this, he puts his finger on some very important elements as it pertains to our human identity. First, he says this. He says humans were made, we're created by and for something, actually someone. We were created for someone. And thus, to be fully alive, to be fully human, we won't find that by looking within necessarily but by finding ourselves in relation to the one who made us and for whom we were made. We can only truly be human and truly know ourselves and know what this life is by finding ourselves in relation to the one who actually made us. That's, what, that's the first thing he says. The second thing this quote captures is to be human is to be on the move is to be pursuing something, is to be going after something. He said, you made us for. You made us for. That means we're like, this is what philosophers called a telos. We were made for something. We're made towards something, what David Foster Wallace calls worship. We're made to move our life, to aim our loves, to aim our desire, to aim our lives in a certain direction. We all do this. Even if someone calls you lazy, we all do this. We cannot not love. We cannot not go after something. Also, Augustine locates the center of this teleological orientation. He says, it's, it all comes from the heart. Now, we sentimentalize the heart today, but in, um, in the, when the Bible uses the word in ancient, uh, in ancient writings, the heart is the seat of our longings and desires. When the Bible uses the word heart, it is talking about the hotspot of our fundamental longings, our subconscious orientation to the world, what DFW calls worship. Default settings. We are going after these things. It's all our heart. Therefore, what this means is that it's not just an intellect, you're not on a intellectual quest. The quest that you and I are on as humans is more about hunger and craving. If you remember that Hosier song from a few years ago, Take Me to Church, which is not about church, right? Right before he gets into the refrain, he screams, this is hungry work, that this is hungry work. Human longing is hungry work. It's not an intellectual work. It's hunger. It's desire work. And then Augustine says, like a beach ball underwater, our hearts are restless until they find air. Like, if you, I don't know if you're ever trying to hold a beach ball underwater and how wiggly it is and how, like, wonky it is. And what does it want to do? What does a beach ball want to do? It wants to come up to the surface. Our hearts are like that underwater. Our hearts are restless. They're just full of this annoying anxiety, restlessness, because we were made to find our end in God. And since we are made to find our end in God, we will experience this annoying anxiety, this restlessness, when we try to love anything other than God Or, as David Foster Wallace says, it will eat you alive. So to summarize, you cannot not love. You cannot not long or desire. What you love will make or break you. And until you love the right thing, you will be restless. So it's so important that you find what you were created to love. St. Augustine said, that is God. The second thing is this. Once you found that, orient your entire life toward it. Make it your aim, or we would call it our rule. Make it like, I'm gonna order my schedule around this. I found the thing. Jesus talks about a parable of like, someone who finds a treasure in a field. He, this person takes and sells everything he has to buy the field because the treasure is so great. It's that thing. It's like, I found the thing that my heart longs for, and I'm orienting my entire life towards this thing. In our text, notice, the language and words chosen by Jesus to call his first disciples. He says, come, follow me, and I will make you become. Come, follow me, and I will make you become. A few things to note here. Every single, every single phrase has, is pregnant with meaning. First, come. This is one of Jesus' favorite verbs, an invitation to come to him, come to me, he says. Also he says this in Matthew, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, come to me. Jesus will use and say many other verbs like go and die and serve and love, but this verb describes what is essential in discipleship to Jesus, come to Jesus. This is his posture toward the world, come to me. We don't have to wait to clean up our lives. We don't have to wait until we get our act together. The invitation is just to come. And he says, not just come to me, but follow me. What's interesting about this is that Jesus was um, a rabbi, known as a rabbi, called a rabbi. But here, he, he's actually acting more like a philosopher. Again, I'm not saying that Jesus is just a philosopher. I'm saying that we have, we've been missing this part of, uh, of Jesus, I think, for a while that was lost somewhere, that Jesus actually teaches how to, how to live. And I think we need to reclaim that. Here he, he acts more like a philosopher. See, rabbis didn't call people to follow them necessarily, but to follow Torah. So when you, they would follow a rabbi, you would follow their teaching of Torah. They would, ultimately, you're following Torah, not me. Like law, not me. Actually, the idea of following God in the Old Testament is rare if not altogether absent. You really won't find that language. People of God are called to walk in God's ways and according to his statutes, but Jesus was doing something completely different. He was calling people to himself. This is what philosophers did. Again, Jonathan Pennington. The second idea that comes from this ancient view of philosophy is that we need models in community. To learn how the world works and how to live well requires teachers People who have the capacity, training, and years of life experience combined with virtue and integrity who can serve as instructors and models. But can I just stop and say, we need philosophers today. We need them. We need them in government. We need them in in places of power that run organizations and banks and companies. We need these people. This is what what a philosopher is, he goes on to say. Philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle gathered disciples around them who wanted to learn their wisdom, knowledge of both what the world is and how to live practically in it. Soon, this gathering of learners became formalized in schools where young men and women gathered in cities, especially Athens, to live with the philosopher and other disciples. They intentionally exercised the body and the mind, shaping habits and the heart. From the time of Plato on, it was understood that philosophy, quote, could be carried out only by means of a community of life and dialogue between masters and disciples within a framework of a school. In this sense, this is exactly what Jesus did. He called disciples to himself, to live with him, to become like him, to take on his teachings, to take on more than just the the, the knowledge of of teachings, but to take on um, habits of the heart, to shape their imagination, to shape their longings and their love. This is what Jesus taught in, in parables all the time. He didn't teach in like didactic, do this, do that, here's three points. He taught like, he, he made you like want to love something that was bigger. He would teach in parables that open up your imagination to something way, way big. And so there was truths inside of it, but these truths worked on you to where they worked on your imagination and your love and your heart, that sort of thing. He brought disciples to himself to teach, how, to teach them how the world works and how to live in it. Now Jesus' shorthand for this, for how, the world work is, for how the world works is he said, this is, or come into, the kingdom of heaven. He was bringing people into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That life lived in the reality of God's rule this like non-anxious reality that, that living under God's rule brings. This is what Jesus taught. So to follow Jesus is a, mo- a lot more than seeing him as your ticket to heaven, more than just making you feel less guilty about your wrongdoings or bad decisions. It was Jesus' aim to shape his disciples to see the world completely differently for his disciples to live in the world and in God himself in such a way as to live a life that is really life. This is what Dallas Willard, the philosopher at UCLA, said. You would follow Jesus to become good at what Jesus was good at. This is why you followed anyone. This is why you, followed, this is why you would apprentice under anyone. If you're apprenticing under a chef or under a plumber or under um, a carpenter, you're like, I wanna be good at what you're good at. Why would you apprentice under Jesus? I want to be good at what he's good at, and what was Jesus good at? Living in the kingdom of God, living in union with God, in relationship with God. What does he teach us to do? Live in the kingdom of God, live in union with God, learn how to love. Lastly, he says this: Jesus says, "I will make you become." And here it is: the whole hope, the telos, is what is that Jesus is making his disciples. Become someone. And becoming someone isn't as much as knowledge as it's about desire and habit and love. It's about what you love. Because you become what you love. Again, this is why Jesus taught in parables why Jesus had them follow him in all of life. This is why Jesus would explain things to them, why he was shaping their entire imagination and all of their loves. So Jesus comes as someone who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our loves. At least that's the goal. Jesus doesn't want to deposit new ideas in your mind. He's after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. He just doesn't want to deposit ideas. He wants your your loves, your heart, your desires, your longings. This is why I think it's a beautiful idea of Jesus as the great philosopher to like be really compelling here. See, philosophy means a love for wisdom or a to love wisdom. That is, disciples who followed a philosopher learned to love wisdom the way their master teacher loved wisdom, to love the way the world worked, how to live in the world, to love virtue and character and all the habits that shaped those loves. You were to follow a philosopher to love wisdom in such a way as to become wise and to love being wise. So you can say discipleship to Jesus is not the denial of desire, but a reordering of our loves for the greatest good for us and others in God. This, when you follow Jesus, he reorders all of this stuff to teach you how to live in the world. As we quoted at the beginning, here it is again. The flourishing and happy life does not happen accidentally. We have, a, uh, in, in Christian circles, too often we have this theology of the zap, like God's going to zap us into Christ-likeness, or zap us into holiness or zap us into who we want, we, he, he wants us to be. But the zap doesn't really happen. That's not really how it works. It doesn't happen accidentally. It must be sought after. And the means of the pursuit is a life of discipleship to a way of life, to a philosophy, way of seeing and being in the world that is pursued and practiced. First, becoming aware of yourself and then turn away from foolish, non-giving life habits and thoughts In biblical language. Repent and then over time, learn new ways of living through failures and successes in practice. This is why we have a rule of life. These are our ways of becoming aware of yourself and turning away from foolish, non-giving life practices. This is, a, this is our pursuit of the, a, a, like a, a full-life discipleship. It's a pursuit and the practice of that discipleship. This is what we're after, the formation of your love's, toward likeness and not just done alone in your room by yourself, but in community. This is why our community groups are going through this because you learn the way of Jesus in a community of people who are failing and trying to do the same thing. This is what we're after. The formation of your loves toward likeness through practices that we learn together in community. But here's the thing, it's not enough formation itself, practices itself, habits, disciplines are not enough. For some of us, you're thinking, oh, are you giving me a, an equation? Are you giving me, is this coding? Is this input equals output? Is this zeros and ones? I like this church. You're just gonna give me a formula. I'm just gonna input it into my like, schedule, my flow and all this other stuff. And then boom, I'm gonna become like this? No. And this is where we have to talk about Fire. Because it's way more mystical than that. Our life with God is way more mystical than that. Julian of Norwich, um, a Christian mystic in the 1300s, she was actually the first uh, woman to to write a book in English. Um, She said in one of her writings, and this is where, this 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 is the fire right here. She said, I saw him and sought him and I had him, and I lacked him, and this is and should be our ordinary undertaking in this life. I saw him, and I sought him, and I had him, and I lacked him, and this should be our ordinary undertaking in this life. This is the fire that we need, quite literally, the fire, that we need what's going on keep this quote up there what's going on in this quote there is an initial quickening that happens for followers of jesus a grace of god that arrests us that finds us that makes us see color for the first time this is c.s lewis's moment when he says um i because i see god i see all things it's like i finally see god and i see everything It's like this moment where your eyes are open. Your heart is captured. God captures your heart. He opens your eyes. You're arrested by God. And you have this like, some people call it like, your heart is strangely warmed. It's been used in history to say that. There's something that happens when your heart is arrested. And this moment begins a pursuit. A pursuit that's needed in any spiritual formation. It's the pursuit of desire. It's fire, it's love, it's passion. Any love that you have in this life starts with this spark, anything. Any romance starts with this spark. It could be a friendship that turns into a spark. You need the spark for it to catch fire. There is this moment where this happens, and then there is a pursuit. This is what Julian has called, I saw him. And there's a desire for more. More of God, though you have him, He's living in you. You want more. You want more of his presence. You want more of his love. And it's paradoxical because you can't have all of his love because you would completely explode. But you want it. But then it goes away. The glory fades. The feelings are gone. That moment where your heart is warmed is now cold. And you wake up and you do the same things you did yesterday, but it doesn't feel the same. And I don't know why this is. Why the closeness and the nearness and the potency of the presence of God fades, but it does. It fades, and I would be lying to you if I said it didn't. It does, the thing is, it leaves behind something. It leaves behind a deep memory of a pleasant scent of a recent visitation, and this scent and this memory starts another chasing, a journey to find God again. So after the seeing comes a greater Seeking, And this is why she says, and I sought him. This is the long obedience in the same direction. This is the ask, seek, and knock. This is abiding in God. This is the path. This is the habits, the disciplines, the practices, the rule of life. That's what this is. I sought him. I arranged my life in such a way that I would not miss his next visitation. We fold these practices into our lives. We orient towards them. We reorder our loves towards these things. And these practices, these disciplines, don't make the encounter happen. They just make us assume the inner posture that offer the least amount of resistance to future encounters. This is the seeking. I sought him. And then, and we don't know when this happens, but it happens, we're swept away again. And we have him. We see God. We encounter him. And it's amazing. It's remarkable. It's even more resting than the time before. But how, do you, how long do you get to keep that? not forever, and I lacked him, and then it goes away again, but this lack only deepens the longing and starts the pursuit all over again. This is fire. This is the passion that we need over and over again for God. There there will be times in your life where your love will wane, What will keep you in that right posture will be the practices, the disciplines, the things that you way you arrange your life. But you're waiting, you're waiting for this this visitation. This is the mystics called, I'm waiting for this experience of the divine to wash over me. Will it happen every single day? Will it happen once a month? You don't know. But it happens. And every time it does happen to you, it starts all over again. You want it again and again and again. And she says, and this should be our ordinary undertaking in this life. This movement towards God, this fire, this thing that we're contending for, that we keep seeking and asking, this thing that we, we show up with all of our passion and heart and ask God to do, God move in my life, show up in my life, show up in my, in my city, in my church, in my community, show up, this, this continuous seeking, this is what happens. And sometimes it goes away, you don't feel it, but you still show up, you still pursue, and you still contend. And then it happens again and over and again. And you have him and then you lack him. You seek him and he's gone. And you do it over and over and over again. And this is our ordinary undertaking in this life. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, I wanna pray for um, love that has, has grown cold in this room where there were times when we were seeking you and finding you and it felt like you were so available to us and your presence was so there. It's like we lived, everywhere we went was like a thin space where heaven and earth like overlapped and then it just goes cold and dry and we think that we did something wrong or you did something wrong or something's wrong or, and we don't know what to do next and I pray for this, this church for this community of people, that we would give ourselves to arrange our life in a way that removes the resistance for another one of these moments to happen in our life. We would just posture ourselves and position ourselves over and over again. Over and over again. Formation isn't enough, God. All the plans that we have are not enough. We need you, God. We need this visitation from the spirit of the living God to come down and free us from our guilt and our sin and our, our own death and our own um, lostness and loneliness and coldness and all the things that we feel. Would you come, Lord Jesus? Come Holy Spirit. Would you visit us now, Lord? We pray for that. We're here doing one of the things that um, we do every week, a practice of making ourselves available to you by being in a community of people worshiping you. Would you show up? Would you visit us, Lord? Come Holy Spirit.